Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the November 7, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. It's election day in some places. I have a proposition to everyone. On every election day, in the way that we're supposed to change our batteries and our smoke alarms, we should always check with our voter registration at our re local registrar's office, each primary and general election. Make sure that we are where we want to be registered to vote. So, uh, and of course, remind your friends who live in New Jersey and Virginia to vote today. Deal? Now, as for today's program, two brand new enterprises known as Bottle Rocket and Closed Loop Plastics are keeping track of and paring down the waste stream of those polymers that most of you use without even thinking. These titans are recent UCI graduates, CEO William Amos of Closed Loop Plastics and Brian Lung from, uh, he's the, the Chief Operating Officer of Bottle Rocket. In the second segment, Irvine City Principal Planner Bill Jacobs will present the update on Irvine City's general plan, what goes in the ground, where you live matters, folks. We'll cover several of the elements, talk trends, kick the tires of a few urban planning assumptions, and offer some ways of registering public comments before the deadline, Monday, November 20th this year. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thanks for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My show here, we're talking about the uh, taking, tacking onto a recent show dealing head-on with plastics. And my guests are with two different enterprises dealing with those persistent polymers with plastics. We'll, we are done with them, the plastics, but not my guests. And so certainly all of you keep using them because you do. My first guests are William Amos. And w William Amos is, was raised in Marin County, and he earned his Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Engineering. Uh, last June, he is the CEO of Closed Loops Plastics, and he was a winner of the Brower Youth Award for Environmental Leadership. And then uh, he appeared, some of you might have even heard him on KALW, as well as on a podcast, an organic conversation. I don't know. I think we're dealing with inorganic plastics, though. So the, there's a uh, weird irony here. So Brian Lung is a Bay Area transplant, and we're going to hope he calls us very soon and keep us at the edge of our audio seats here. He is a Bay Area transplant, and he's a tech analyst familiar with both the Silicon Valley and Orange County startup scenes passionate about social justice and equality. He's excited about Bottle Rocket's potential to spark a social movement that creates an environmental impact. Brian will come to us today from his nearby office. Okay, all right. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. We have joining us William Amos and Brian Lung, and they are presenting their plastic enterprises. Well, let's have both of you talk about your relationship to applied innovations over at UCI's Research Park and what, uh, how they make it happen for you two. Let's start with William. Thanks so much, Claudia. So we um, 
started working at Applied Innovation uh, back in June. Uh, we use that facility as they give us space to work in. We have access to their network. We can do uh, a lot of work there involving fundraising, business development. We get a lot of help. Uh, I'm an engineer, so I actually have no idea how to start a business right out of college. So they help us get these things started, get them off the ground. And that's kind of what they're really helping us do. Brian, how does it work for you? Yeah, for us, we got connected to the Entrepreneur Center based uh, off of UCI campus, actually. So we got um, the recommendation starting to that program, and they have uh, an incubation kind of program set up where you take an idea to them, uh, and then you kind of release your beta product, and then you get incubated uh, through Wayfinder at the Cove. And so we went through that process, I think, uh, senior year of my undergrad, and, you know, we've raised a, a few rounds of investment since then. And so, you know, um, we're happy to say we're one of the small success stories that, that came out of that program. Program. And so we're really happy and glad uh, to be there. So Wayfinder, is that in-kind support or some financial? How does that work? They do have uh, in-kind kind of support. They have a lot of access to mentorship, uh, you know, access to, um, you know, uh, potential capital. They do have their own dedicated co-fund, which you can apply to. Uh, but, but the basic level of support they give you is non-equity-based, and it's free for all uh, UCI students, uh, grads, and um, current faculty and staff. It's a really great program we recommend. Okay. Well, let's uh, – so I, I guess I gotta, I've got to ask the wide-eyed question. When did the two of you first have plastics become a, a going concern you wanted to pursue? So This for, is William. Sorry. So for me, plastics have been a concern um, specifically for the last two years. Uh, I got started on a project called the Solar Decathlon uh, House Competition Project. Oh, now that I needed for your bio. I'm That's, sorry. That is my mind candy central. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so we did that. And a part of that was working on the tool room of the future, which involved 3D printing. Uh, and I'm an environmental engineer, and I was looking at 3D printing going, man, this is really cool, but we're using all this plastic, and the plastic, because it doesn't have a, a number on it, like your bottles or things like that, you can't recycle it. And so we wanted to create a system where we could recycle the 3D printed plastic that you don't use anymore back into 3D printable material. And then we started looking at the general plastic problem uh, around the world and going, wait a minute, couldn't we start using other waste plastics, not just from 3D printing, but from conventional waste streams like that go right into your blue bin? Okay, so Brian, when did you think, when did you see plastics were in there? And this isn't Mrs. Robinson, by the mm -hmm. way. Yeah, so, so I mean, for, for us, it, it was a little bit more um, <laughs> local, kind of just seeing the problem, I think, with college students. You know, we're supposed to be the future generation kind of stewards of our planet and kind of pushing forward the, the new green movement. But, you know, unfortunately, in my college experience, I lived in a house of about uh, six college students, and, and nobody would recycle. <laughs> we generate about, um, you know, huge, huge amounts of waste on a weekly basis, you know, just with gatherings, uh, kind of like social events. Uh, and so, you know, I really wanted to think, or me and my partner wanted to think, you know, how can we approach this problem and make it so that there's a fun and kind of incentivizing way to, to get students to be more uh, aware uh, and conscientious about recycling. And so uh, we kind of base this product kind of as an education platform uh, to, to make recycling more at the forefront of people's minds. So uh, I'm going to open up an office over there at Applied Innovations, and it's going to be the sexiest ever campaign to say, don't even buy that crap. Don't, I mean, because I count per person walking away from all of the food and beverage purveyors on campus. I count the cup, the lid, and the straw. And, I, and so, well, it's true. It starts just with the stop using well. the stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think a key thing that we have to figure out is that 
basically even in conventional recycling. So if your cup, lid, uh, straw makes it to the blue bin, it, only 10% of that actually gets made into That's, new material. I wanted you to get to that. Okay. And also, here's an issue is that once it's even there, it gets uh, travels about 19,000 miles and can emit thousands of tons of carbon dioxide before you even make it into a new material. So the fact is, yeah. even the way we recycle yeah. today is is kind of uh, inefficient. Um, and so what Brian and I are trying to do is make this more of a, an efficient and effective way to actually help the plastic problem, not just kind of perpetuate it. Brian? Um, I mean, I, I agree completely with uh, what Will said. I mean, uh, the waste monopoly is really not designed to be for recycling. They actually make more money, unfortunately, on landfilling uh, material. So, you know, there's never been an incentive to, to really innovate in, in that space, and I think that's exactly what Will and I are trying to do. Okay. So let's, let's – we'll talk about what your product is, but first let's talk about the plastics – you're, you don't have an overlapping market here, really. You, that Will is going after the stuff that can't be recycled, correct? Well, we're... we're or is it anything can, you can shove through that 3D printer? Well, so we're trying to get it to the point where we can shove anything through the 3D printer, but right now uh, some key things are we can take those coffee lids that are polystyrene and put them through uh, high-density polyethylene, so your, your jugs of... Uh, detergents. Those jugs are made of really good plastic to recycle. So there's a lot of different resins we can recycle, but we can, can't recycle them all yet. So key things are like those PET thin water bottles, the single-use water bottles. Those are hard to recycle on any level. So even just getting they rid are? of those. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now we can turn those into recycle material with more research for 3D printing, but it, it's going to be, that's definitely more in the longer term. Short term, there's plastics we can recycle right now, such as polystyrene, uh, which is your red solo cups. We can also recycle um, your high, as we said, high density polyethylene. So those jugs of uh, detergents that you're done with, we can recycle um, coffee lids, straws, things like that. But you get to thin film, like why, why the plastic bag ban is still necessary, even with recycling, is those thin film plastics are incredibly hard to recycle into back into resin you want to they don't go anywhere they're strictly landfill basically going to landfill or you can have some people making them into kind of the the pseudo fabric thing that you can make into bags but that's kind of not going to really divert enough of that plastic into the bag industry the chic kind of like sustainable uh apparel industry or in uh, our little bedding that, right. that kind of thing exactly. our sweaters okay right. and brian you're working with Think anything that's got the Recycle logo on it, right? That's your product line. Oh, actually, um, we're kind of um, focused on CRV beverage containers. So in the state of California, uh, in 1989, they passed AB 2020, which was the bottle and can deposit law. And so what that did was create kind of a market to incentivize uh, you know, people in California to recycle bottles and cans. And so, so beverage containers is what it was. Uh, and so since then, you know, the last 20 plus years, there hasn't been any real change to that system. So what people have, or families and households have to do is that they have to collect uh, all these bottles and cans um, themselves. They have to take it physically in their cars, uh, drive all the way to a local recycling center uh, to wait in line just to receive their bottle and can redemption back. So every time at the store when you pay five cents in a CRB tax for these beverage containers, this is the process you have to go through just to get any money back. And it's old, it's outdated, it, it's you know, incredibly physical. And one and, other thing. You know, we, we kind of cut that inconvenience for the 
user to make it accessible for everybody. Oh, just and I, so we're kind of using this as a platform not only to reward people uh, for recycling their bottles and cans, but, but to kind of advocate for kind of green, sustainable living on a larger scale. Well, I was just thinking one other problem with that is that sometimes those recycling centers vanish. <laughs> and you exactly. slept well, all those crummy little... They're, they're sweaty. I mean, you know, it's hot outside. You have to wait in a line and, and sort everything by hand. I'm sure, yeah, if, if you've been to one before, this is kind of a problem that, that everyone there faces. And so that's exactly the problem that, that we're trying to kind of address and make accessible for, for most uh, families. Okay, so let's t tell us how each of your business models actually work and tell us the sort of geographic scope of your enterprise. We'll start with Will. Totally. So um, essentially how our <clears throat> business model works is that municipalities tend to uh, they collect and sort waste at MRF facilities. So they sort all this waste into plastic type. We can then take that waste that's already sorted to our facility, turn it into 3D printable filament, and sell it to a multitude of channels that take 3D printing filament and use it to make products. These are universities, K-12 through schools. Uh, you can go to independent makers, people with 3D printers in their homes already, early adopters and hobbyists. Uh, these kinds of people will uh, buy the filament and then use it. So now we're And how? What does that filament become? That filament can become uh, any kind of 3D printed object. So we like, work with... Um, oh, I see. It's an object. Yeah, yeah so, so you be... can 3D print a little boat. You can 3D print moving parts. You can it's 3D print... It's more plastic, though, because we know polymers don't go away. But, exactly. So, but it's another object. So it could be toys. It could be... Useful I don't know parts. what other... Other... I, Dishes? Dishware? You can sometimes print dishware. Uh, you can also print uh, spare parts for pieces of furniture that need to be fixed. Oh, so wow. you can actually integrate this right back into your home. And the beautiful thing is what we're going to integrate at CLP is instead of taking that waste that you generate and, again, having another waste stream problem, we'll take it right back and make it into more plastic again. Okay. So we're going to make sure that we're closing the loop even after our users that's get the, the 3D printing filament. CLP is the closed loop plastics. So yeah. that's Yeah. That's hence the word. So what's the totally. geographic breadth of your energy? Enterprise. So right now, as we start, we're going to focus on Southern California, uh, then expand out uh, and create more processing centers as demand increases and as we increase our uh, the need for more inventory. So we'll expand into probably the Bay Area next. Uh, oh, there's wow. a hub actually in uh, Dallas, Texas for 3D printing, so we might expand out to there uh, and just kind of keep expanding um, our production capability and inventory capability to recycle more and more plastic. Uh, we've actually partnered with uh, the second largest uh, waste management firm in North America called Waste Connections, uh, and we've partnered with them to kind of work with their uh, materials recovery facilities and recycling facilities all over North America. Where are they based? Yeah, they're based out of Dallas, and so but they have facilities all over North America, uh, and so they uh, that's kind of a, a key thing, a key partnership we have to expand beyond just Southern California. In our own facility, we could maybe start, we're going to start partnering and pairing our facilities near theirs so that we can keep kind of taking the waste that they collect and sort and making it into 3D printable plastic. So before we let Brian tell us this, the geographic scope and how this works, I want to just remind those listeners who've just joined us, my guests are Brian Lung, Chief Operating Officer of Bottle Rocket, and William Amos. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Closed Loop Plastics, all recent grads at UCI, now entrepreneurs going into plastic, not quite in the way of the advice given in the graduate, but close. So, Brian, tell us about Bottle Rocket. You've already launched, but uh, you're, you're already ready, rocking and rolling, pardon the pun. How does your operation work? Yep, so... Our 
Corporation is an on-demand recycling service for family households. So what we do is that we give users our own proprietary bin to collect bottles and cans. Uh, we make it simple. All they have to do is uh, go online or text us uh, to request a pickup once their bin is full, and we uh, pick up the bottles and cans and deliver it to a local partner recycling center. And so, as Will mentioned earlier, uh, you know, by processing recycling through your blue band, or through a MRF is what we call it, a material recovery facility, not 100% of the material is able to be diverted from the landfill stream. Okay. Uh, in the areas that we service right now, Tustin, Orange, and Santa Ana, in fact, only 60% of what you put in, in that blue band in, in those areas are able to be successfully recovered and turned into new products. So for us, we do a process called single stream recycling, which involves a source separation, so uh, separating the material by category and type. So uh, plastic with the plastic, the glass with the glass, and the aluminum with the aluminum. And, and what that does is that ensures that about 100% of all material that we collect is able to be uh, turned back into new products in, in the form of new beverage containers in about two months flat. So that reduces the, the need to um, use virgin types of materials, and, and so uh, we help kind of uh, the life cycle, the recycling life cycle in that way. And so we give uh, consumers the financial incentives uh, to, to want to recycle. Uh, we partner with local recycling centers, which uh, need additional revenue stream. And, you know, we are able to take some of that for ourselves, too, uh, to be able to grow and expand our service. And so that's why our model, motto is, um, you know, you recycle, we pay Earth win. So is it's you let us know then uh, when we get the app for your bottle rocket uh, pickup that uh, we'll know whether our zip code is you you didn't include Irvine we said Tustin Orange and Santa Ana but Irvine is in there because I, I I tried my uh, zip code yesterday. Oh okay um that might be something we we need to look into. Uh, Irvine is not yet uh, in our oh, current area of okay. service. We're, we're expanding um, slowly. Uh, we have about 1,400 households currently signed up with our service uh, in Orange County so far, and next we're looking towards uh, Irvine and uh, the lower Santa Ana area. And so, you know, we just need to generate enough density and enough kind of awareness uh, to be able to service communities similar in the way, you know, Postmates or Uber uh, has to unlock uh, different geographical territories at a time. So, you know, we have our first uh, kind of stage of service uh, in the orange Tuscan Santa Ana area, but we're looking to expand soon. So it would be on the lookout for that. And so Irvine's next? Or that's... The just I always like to 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 scoop everybody I can on on the well, fast breaking scoop news. everybody we can yeah so so there's actually it, it's funny you mentioned in terms of geographical scope so so there's actually 10 other states that have this bottle and can redemption program so states like New York Michigan uh, Hawaii they all have a bottle and can redemption program and, and internationally too um you know places like Canada who, who's uh ecosystem is really impacted, uh, you know, by plastic pollution, you know, getting into their lakes. In places like Australia, you know, uh, where plastic pollution affects their, their Great Barrier Reef, uh, they just recently implemented bottle and can laws, too. And, and so we really see this service having a, a huge impact, uh, you know, worldwide even, if we can uh, start here in California first. So when I said Titan, that was, you guys are, are validating that claim. That you're, so you, you're, you have international sites, Brian, are you telling us? Oh, no, no, I'm talking about the, the market opportunity we That's have That's what here. I mean. Yeah, well, so you say, yes, I do have international <laughs> sites. Yeah. 
All right. So, okay. <laughs> so, so Bottle Rockets already launched the website, but Closed Loop Plastics, mm-hmm. when will you launch? Because it says that you're a work in progress when we go online to your mm-hmm. website. When are you guys up and running? So we're going to have our website launched in mid-January. Uh, and we also, though, if you want to kind of follow our story and see as we kind of develop, you can follow us on uh, Facebook. at closed, Our group is Closed Loop Plastics on Facebook or on Instagram, uh, where our username is Closed Loop Plastics as well. So you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and see kind of where we're going and how we're developing. Uh, but by mid-January, we'll have our site up and running and hopefully uh, start doing our beta testing of our product and things like that. And, you know, I want to make a little plastic gun with one. I know oh, yeah, right. And then, and then I'm going to... Uh, what will I do with it? I, I know. That's keep a certain demographic uh, guessing. Exactly. I think that, that yeah. would be the purpose of the, it. Exactly. Everybody knows exactly. I'm such the... So uh, that's the, the takeaway there is uh, for people to keep watching as you, your enterprises grow. Anything else you guys want to add before we uh, wrap this little puppy up? Planet Earth first, man. Yeah. So actually, I, I'd like to know what you guys, your own... What Will's and Brian's, what your daily plastic consumption is, or if you'd rather go weekly, what do you go through? Uh, daily plastic consumption, I keep it down to hopefully one or two coffee lids a day if I have to. But then I put those in our bin that we collect our recycling in. in so we, we collect all of our own uh, waste on our team. Okay, Brian? Uh, well, I have a reusable um, beverage bottle uh, from... Target, but other than that, I'm trying to think because you know people really don't realize how much plastic they're generating until you know they look in their bin and they're like, wow, you know that was all me. And so this is kind of what our product uh, is designed around. Uh, for me, it's probably maybe a microwavable lunch. I'd say when I when I make frozen food. So you're putting okay. That's that's a health advisor. I don't mind giving you microwaving and plastic <laughs> is a. We're, well, we're almost over that. You don't have too much time to, to cook sustainably, unfortunately. <laughs> That's but what, um, we do the best I can. Yeah. So let me just run one, one thing. So I uh, demurred from buying some peanut butter at a, a grocery store, but because uh, there it is, it's they're, they're not coming in glass jars anymore. But so the so the bottom part, the clear plastic part, if I were to buy it, it goes to to Brian, and the lid goes to Will. Is that probably. how that works? Or both of them could go to us. That, or both could go to you. Okay. But we'll probably work with Brian to get those two. Well, that is all the precious time we have with you guys. My guests were Brian Lung. He's the Chief Operating Officer of Bottle Rocket. And William Amos. Uh, he's the CEO of Closed Loose Plastics. They're recent grads of UCI. They're now entrepreneurs going into plastic. We're so glad to have you both with us. Thanks for, for joining us today. Thanks so much, Claudia. All right. Here Thank we, you. Thank you. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir. You. Plastics. We'll be right back with Principal Planner of Irvine. That will be Bill Jacobs. We're so glad to have him with us shortly. Be right back. Thank you for staying with us. Welcome back to the show. 
uh, ask a leader. It would be presumptuous of me to say that this next segment will be an exhaustive treatment of the general plan for Irvine 2035, but we'll try to capture the gist of it in advance of the close of the public comment period, November 20 of this year. Taking us through this is my next guest, Bill Jacobs, who is a the principal planner with the city of Irvine to talk about this process underway. Bill Jacobs has 28 years of municipal planning experience, including the cities of Santa Barbara, Burbank, and Victorville. His experience in both development review and long-range planning includes comprehensive mixed-use planning for downtown Burbank and various mixed-use developments in the downtown and waterfront areas of Santa Barbara. Quite the repertoire and portfolio. He has recently completed a mixed-use residential development strategy and implementation plan for the 2,700-acre business complex, which is rapidly transitioning from a traditional suburban commercial and industrial center to an urban mixed community. We'll, we'll bring up some of those questions uh, in today's interview. And he's currently overseeing a comprehensive update to the city's general plan. He earned his bachelor's in science in city and regional planning at Cal California Polytechnic San Luis Obispo and has overseen the earliest practical experience of UCI's urban planners. He joins me in studio, and we'll add he's also a, a resident of the city and where he's planning. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Bill Jacobs. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. So, so Bill, the scope, it, uh, it's from 2013 to 2035. There's other references on the web that go to 2021, but I... Ostensibly, it's all the way to 2035. This this vision goes. That's correct. That's normally our build out, uh, our build out projections out to 2035. Okay. So then the data that I notice online it goes through 2013. So the for for getting trends established and projections and all that. So four years later from 2013, things really do look very different, don't they? Yes, they do. We we are seeing a lot more growth. Um, the economy is going fantastic right now, and um, the Irvine Company and Five Points are doing a lot of building, so uh, we're seeing a lot of activity. Well, I'm, I know you're, you're largely working on the Irvine business complex, but let's say you had the, uh, the power to direct everybody's, every constituent in the city's attention to any particular element. Where would you want them to focus? I don't think I can focus them on one element because the plan is such a comprehensive document. We want their input on a wide range of issues. I think the biggest one of interest is people to people is ultimately land use itself because so Which much matters. of the way for planners, but the way the general plan works is it has a number of state mandated elements. Uh, those include housing, circulation, noise, and several others, but they all tie into how land uses work. So if someone were first studying the general plan, I think they would focus on a land use element. And with Irvine growing, I mean, it's like from the, is 20, from the year 2000 to 2012, grow, the growth rate at 56.4%, this poses big challenges for planners. It does. It, I will say uh, the city is growing, fortunately, because we have what, uh, we're working with master developers, not, not smaller individual developers, but one master developer for most of the city, and then at, uh, out at the Great Park, we have another one. They're able to accommodate anticipated growth in building the infrastructure. I think what's happening, though, that, uh, is the reality of what's been happening with people moving into homes. We're finding larger household sizes, 
uh, we're finding larger household sizes and therefore it's creating more of an impact on the neighborhoods in terms of parking and traffic. I think that's a contributor to uh, a lot of the traffic concerns that people have right now. And there's a number of other factors too, but I'll start with that. Okay, how much more land does Irvine have to build out? And talk about in terms of land. I'll talk about in terms of uh, intensity, the, the number okay. of units itself. Like infill it yeah. includes that opportunity. Well, it, it, exactly. But I would say right now the Irvine Company and Five Points have the number of units that they plan to build at build out. Those are approved in one form or another, whether in the general plan or they, they're already mapped out in the subdivision or they're already ahead with their, their building designs. So everything is approved that we're anticipating in the general plan. And when you look at how much is actually built out there, we're about um, three quarters of the way there. So all this land that's vacant out there right now, we give Los Olivos as an example, the, okay. where um, the, the amphitheater was demolished recently in the water park. Still very sentimental about that. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, or but the, and the Pelts, no, the Peltzer Pines are part of that too, I think. I believe so. Okay. But I go back to Lion Country Safari. So okay, that, that, yeah, 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 yeah. So this site has a lot of history to it. But getting, but what the point is, though, is that there's it's all vacant land right now, but in the next several years, that is going to be built out with uh, another 2,000 apartments that are approved. Okay. So that's what you're going to see in other areas around there, like Laguna Altura, and then further north in Orchard Hills. There are areas that are vacant, but they're all approved for development. So we know what's going to be happening. So what that means for the general plan is backing up a bit our general plan was last approved in 2000 and when you look at the yeah. language in there it deals with everything about when you do this in the future when you build this out very forward thinking which is what a general plan is supposed to do but now we're getting at the point where we know everything where everything's going to go so the key focus of the general plan update now is maintenance looking for how to keep Irvine Irvine? How do we maintain the quality of life as the city builds out and um, and as we look for new infill opportunities? Because we know land is going to recycle. Right, right. Oh, boy, I, I wish we had an hour and a half more than we have today because as you uh, present this, the, there's so many consequences to all this and so many interesting dimensions. Well, let's start with where you're mainly involved yourself with the Irvine Business Complex. Is Irvine going to finally have a downtown? What can we expect that mixed use, how it's going to look and feel? With respect to the Irvine Business Complex, I personally, I don't consider that the downtown because I don't think it has the critical mass yet to be a downtown. No. It has approved 15,000 units. That was approved by the city council in 2010. They went from 9,000 allowed units up to 15,000 units. So in 2010, that's during the recession, we didn't see any activity. But then around 2012, when things started picking up again, activity started going like uh, the technical term we use is gangbusters. Yes, and very technical. Now we're approaching the 15,000 units. We have about 300 units left that are unaccounted for in the process, but we have three projects that are, that are about 700 units total that are competing for those remaining units. So we're almost at that maximum of 15,000 units. Tops off, there aren't, you can't add any more, regardless of the, what the development order is entitled. Correct. Okay, because some of them entitled. So while we're in that general area, I am really flummoxed. 
what is going on with that very dense housing on Michelson as we're approaching Jamboree. I don't see, I, when I look at those buildings, I look at a tenement from like a century ago in terms of how those buildings are stacked. I don't see that sort of methodical site plan kind of review of space that's sort of offsetting that the dense structures on that they're on top of each other. What is the history with that entitlement? Certainly, that's all part of the Park Place development uh, that, that um, goes back to the 80s. All the residential that was approved on there goes back to a development agreement that was approved back in 1984. And I don't know the whole history of why it wasn't built until uh, last year, two years ago, when they started it. But the Irvine Company just opened uh, almost 1,000 units that's what you see out there right, right now. Right, yeah, it's and, dense. Uh, I think that was a long time in the works, just given when the project was, when when those units were approved. And now you have the, I believe it's called the Royce, that's uh, some other apartments next to it between the Irvine property, the Irvine Company property and the new hotel that's just opening. Okay. So those go back a long time and it's uh, different development standards and just allowing a higher density on that site because that was a development agreement. And I have a good on good authority there. The, the planning commission was not involved in that. They were excused from that. And that I that is like a, a, a blip that I a hiccup that I I just am. It's kind of appalling how that could have happened. But it is, it's what the zoning code says that certain yeah. cases, wow. certain projects of a certain size do not have to get that discretionary review. So I, I want to dive in really deep with this, if we can, with the affordable housing. Every city has a requirement to build a, a, a portion, contribute to the the regional housing needs allocation. And the fair share for, I believe, Irvine is 37, well, let's just say rounded up, 38,000 units. And uh, the city's adopted an ambitious goal of 9,700 units of affordable housing by the year of 2025. So uh, the, how are we going to get to committing? Well, that's that's a logistical thing in, in politicking and all that. But so how how does that general plan map out and, and assure that there will be that affordable housing mix all over the city? Okay, I'm gonna take a couple points with that. First of all, the regional housing assessment need go by the nickname RENA. Um, what we received from the, the state through our regional planning authority was a uh, allocation in 2012 of 12,149 units. So um, that, was a lot, that was about half of what we got back in 2008 and at the time, twice that amount in 2008, that was really a burden on the city, and the city actually had litigation with SCAG. But by the time it was resolved, 20... So the California Association of Governments. Right. Okay. i got to state my acronyms. Thank you. That's okay. Um, so by the time 2012 rolled around, we had, uh, the, we had a new RENA allocation, which is the 12,149 units. Now, of that, it's roughly an equal distribution of low... Uh, extremely low, low and moderate, so uh, more than half of those would be uh, affordable, and then the remaining 5,000 would be uh, would be market rate. So you have say, about 9,000 uh, or about 8,000 affordable units that we have to plan for. We don't necessarily commit to building them, but we have to at least show That's the big. state and SCAG that we've accommodated land 
for that density in the future. And so that's why we have the, uh, the IBC with uh, additional units. We have additional units to be built at the Great Park. Irvine Company has other properties. And the city has an additional regulation where all, all new housing projects have to have an equivalent of 15% affordability for different levels of uh, d income levels. And that's a big deal because yeah. I'm, uh, I'm looking at the median prices are, it's not representative of the trend now. The, the, the median price in 2008 were 635,000, uh, the mean price for a house in Irvine. And it w went down in 2012, but that was because of the, the d trend of the economy. But they're back up again. So this affordable housing mix, that goal, and that element, it's challenged greatly when we have a hyperheating real estate market that's internationally being uh, promoted. What's the urban planning challenge for you to uh, to take on there? Well, so when we get when we get these projects in the early stages, we work with the developers to make sure that within those projects, regardless of how fast they're built, they still are required to have that affordable housing component. We will ask them to either say 15% of the units be set aside for affordable units or they can pay an equivalent in lieu fee there's a number of complex formulas to get there but payment a payment in lieu of providing affordable housing so the word and then the fee then goes to some sort of land trust building or wh wh where does that fee and how and how much control does the city how much leverage will the city i guess it depends on uh, the leadership of the council and the planning commission from from administration to administration but so where how significant substantial and where does that in lieu of fee funding go sure that goes into a number of sources to provide affordable housing uh, the land trust maintains uh, a lot of it and they're responsible for overseeing a lot of uh, these new projects that come in I'll give the example in the IBC granite court which was built 10 years ago that's 71 uh, very low income units and right now there's another three market rate projects going up around it so that's 71 units out of how many is what's the build out for granite uh, court for the market rate one so that there would be like a how many several hundred no uh, no, Granite Court is 71 units, and they're all affordable. Right. They're affordable. Yes. Oh, it's strictly affordable units. There's no... Okay. I think I, right. that, that's uh, off of Maine. And I'm trying to remember. I think I... Right yeah. at the corner of Kelvin and Murphy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And then you take the project, the Kelvin, right across yes. uh, Kelvin from that. That's market rate units, but it has a number of affordable units within it. So there's a mix. And that's the goal. That's it's, the goal. It's incorporating it, not not ghettoizing the, Exactly, but I just get it focusing on that neighborhood. Right. We have a number of market rate projects going up around it, so that's becoming our first real new neighborhood in the IBC. It just so happens to have started with a completely affordable, 100% affordable to very low income unit project. So now in the other projects, there are scattered, uh, there are scattered units. Over on Darien across Jamboree in that same vicinity, there's another project I think it's about a hundred units I'm not positive that's also planned to be affordable to low-income tenants that's all affordable but there's other market rate projects going on around it for those of you who've just joined us my guest is Bill Jacobs principal planner for the city of Irvine and we're talking about the general plan update Irvine 2035 here on ask a leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine streaming on the web in neighborhoods all over the world on KUCI.org. Well, here, here's my zinger. And I'm, I know some people may be possibly listening that this captures. 
Why is University Hills not mentioned in the affordable housing stock in the general plan update? Because it belongs to UCI. UCI is all state jurisdiction. I know I'm talking very technical here, but okay. that's housing administered and provided as a benefit to uh, prospective faculty here. It's not really, we can't count that as part of our unit count because it's a separate jurisdiction. It's a matter of jurisdiction, but it is. It's probably the most affordable housing in this city. It is, but it's targeted to a very specific audience. Oh, understood, yes. understood. But I'm just thinking, of, for I think it's it's a it's a kind of one of the better kept secrets is that it's like a whole neighborhood standard of living is predicated on how affordable their real estate proposition is. But so I mean, I, I take stock of that that it's it's an amazing amenity for a certain demographic. But as you say, its jurisdiction removes it from the the actual running count of the of the general plans housing element. Exactly, only because it is so targeted to uh, such a specific demographic. With other affordable housing we have, it's opening open just based on income category, not, not the academic restriction in uh, University Hills. So with respect to the homeless population, and, and I actually, I happen to know two women, I see them on a regular basis, nearby and I know where they sort of move around but they, they kind of this is just personalizing a little one of them was actually a guest on uh, one of my colleagues shows here on Monday mornings so how is Irvine managing the homeless population versus other cities in Orange County we are we belong to the Orange County Homeless Coalition so most of the work that is done with the city's management is through the, uh, the Orange County Homeless Coalition. Uh, we have our affordable housing division that uh, works with other transitional providers. We have transitional housing, uh, such as units out at Savannah and the Irvine Inn, the single room occupancy units that will provide for some of that transitional housing. Um, we've taken several point in time count surveys through the county to identify the homeless population in Irvine and I've seen figures in the past from about 10 up to I believe 50 in the last count. And as the the plans uh, housing element acknowledges it's a very difficult population to properly quantify because of the nature of their their low profile. Exactly. That's why they do the point-in-time surveys where they really go to canvas the area to make an extra effort to find people. Yeah. So then on to the energy element. We've, I, I've been interested in so many of these really amazing presentations around the campus and applied innovations. And I had on the last week a Natural Resources Defense Council senior scientists dealing with the public health aspect and there's so many things that can be done to address the sustainability and cool our town off a bit so what are the cooling measures contemplated in the general plan for us to to see highlighted in the interview okay take a number of things with that i think the main thing is just getting rid of the heat islands where it's uh that are primarily concrete and absorbing, reflecting a lot of heat back. We try to have more landscape areas, and I think that a lot of the developments in Irvine do a great job with that, with green belts and landscape setbacks, and uh, the amount of park and open space we have, 20,000 acres. Uh, it's about a third of the city. 
and the type of landscape we use, use drought tolerant to uh, save on water. We do use recycled water where necessary. And then the bigger issue that I think we look at from the, the planning standpoint is what we do with land use. Ideally, to get the best benefit of energy reduction, greenhouse gas reduction, would be to have development focused around transit. But there's two problems with that. One is it's generally agreed that transit in Orange County is not that great compared with other areas. So it's difficult to provide the transit service to get people around. And then providing development to serve that service, most of Irvine, like I've said already, is built out. And what is remains is a lower density. Than Very sprawled. I don't want to say sprawled because when you look at Irvine's master plan from the 60s and you look at what it looks like now, it's been generally consistent. The plan has been the same. The, ma the major difference has been what was planned non-residential commercial use has decreased but traded in intensity for residential use. Okay. If you were to look at the change in what everyone calls the master plan, that's the biggest change. But the colors on the map where it shows where residential is, where commercial is on either side of the city in the spectrum or the IBC. Right. It's straight up. It's still the same. And we have more open space since then. The north and south side of the cities are permanent open space. So the master plan, ha I, that's why I don't feel that really sprawl applies because this has been planned for quite some time. But... The idea that in planning circles is that build more high density concentrated around around transit, but that's not the prevailing thinking here in Irvine. We don't. There's very much in, uh, strong opinions against density because it creates more traffic, but in planning circles, it, that's generally the preferred way to do that. But it brings its own challenges too, which I could take another hour to talk about. Well, uh, let me get an overview of that because and and the mix of uses helps bring the trips down so we're that's that's the goal with trying to keep that not just at the ibc but in every village there has to be some kind of commercial and service sector a job you know and a job mix of, in each of those areas of where people reside Yes, and that's how the Irvine Company built their villages. The idea is that every amenity, all the amenities, schools, parks, and commercial to serve that neighborhood are there. Jobs aren't necessarily mixed into that neighborhood no, when not. you look at the city core, but they're nearby. When you look at the residential core between like Culver and Jeffrey, all residential, but then when you get on either side of that, then you see the jobs start to appear. So someone does not have to go too far to work in Irvine. And the last demographics I saw was that we have anywhere but from 20 to 25% of people that live in Irvine also work in Irvine. Okay. And the percentage was just a little higher in the Irvine business complex. So that's our laboratory because the Irvine company, nor five points, are doing the placemaking we see in any other part of the city. So that's up to the city to do. So that's why we did the vision plan in 2010 to address a mixed-use neighborhood. That's why we wanted to increase the number of units to hopefully get more of that critical mass. I think we have more of a ways to go, but we need to see what we're, what's happening with the units that are going in now. Only half of those units have been built. The rest are approved. But we still have a ways to go before I think the council's going to see more development there. We need to see how it's going now. You know, I wanted to backstep just a moment with the the housing element, and it deals with still keeps us on the density project. Is that there are in University Park there are wholesale dormitories being 
subdivided within a single family residence. So that has huge consequences. And I'm, I'm not sure how that's getting handled in, that's a sort of an enforcement issue, but it does have, we know it's happening. I mean, you, you must you must know it's happening. It's in your neighborhood. So, but it's, it's there's a market kind of pressure for a, for investors that are, you know, absent landlords, they're, they're creating these dormitories in these homes on a cul-de-sac. So how does that get addressed in counting dwelling units this, this and managing is, them? Right. That is my neighborhood. And uh, walk the neighborhood enough, and I see where a lot of these are going on. There's one very prominent uh, on the loop of Seton that uh, has been kind of an issue as for... for us as a neighborhood, but as the city, our ability to regulate is based on what's in the zoning and building codes and what's designed for a certain occupancy. Our limits are a building envelope, how high you can go, what your setbacks are. And you're not counting drywall. Drywall built additional rooms in there, and you and it's not you're not counting cars parked on the curb that That's are displacing the, the other cars that go into the households of two to four people only. Well, it also makes the assumption that people are using their cars, to, uh, garages to park their cars. Half the neighborhood doesn't. Yeah. So it does make a big demand on the street. And we are seeing more of that. So it's a matter and of trips, yeah. enforcement because unless we get complaints that there are units being divided out there, the city is not going to know that this internal division is going on because you can't visibly see it. As a neighborhood, people watching it, they can see we, it. we can see what's going on. But when the city's looking at it from an enforcement standpoint, then, then we can look at uh, the house, the state and federal housing code, and see how many units are actually allowed by a different set of codes, uh, based on what the bedroom size has to be. I don't know the exact numbers, but there's minimum sizes for bedrooms under other, other codes, and if they're not meeting those, then we can require someone who's building what you call these dormitories or boarding houses. They're used in a number of different definitions. Right, right, right. And the general plan looks at it differently. It's looking at how many, the, the or overcrowding definition is how many people live in each of the rooms. It's sort of the, it's the reverses, if, counting the living room, dining room spaces and all that. How many, if it's more than 1.5 people per room, it's, it's uh, of all the rooms available, it's, it's, that's the, the head count there, but as opposed to the subdivision. Well, I just wanted to see, it is a code enforcement, it's not a, a, an, a general plan element, but there's, there's impacts, there's consequences that change the, the neighborhood's general functioning. It really does, and from the larger planning standpoint, that's it. It's the character of the neighborhood that changes. Which is a and prized aspect, a prized amenity throughout the general plan. And yet exactly and that's why our new, our new general plan is going to focus on a neighborhood preservation element where we want to be able to get reasonable goals and policies in place that will protect neighborhoods speaking as as university park resident yes we just celebrated 50 years last year we're yes. the oldest neighborhood in town we predate the incorporation by five years but we recognized in that celebration that that house houses are changing so much with new additions, mansionization, that it's slowly changing the character away from what the Irvine Company had intended. And to many people, this is an unofficial historic neighborhood. Right. So without the ability to better manage those changes, it does become a big issue in terms of this and 
I'm anticipating your next question about accessory dwelling units uh, that also play into that same issue. Single family homes or attached homes, one on a lot, that was the character of University right, Park. Right. You add in what are now granny flats, but now the state law has changed them to allow other units that can be rented out. Now all of a sudden you have what are effectively duplexes. Right, right. But see, but that's what's driving all this is the, the affordable housing stock with that international market pressure on that. It's, it's making, pushing the toothpaste out of the tube in more than one place. Well, I actually, we've got to check in. I, I wanted to cover like 16 more things, but I, <laughs> I just wanted to know just briefly, and, and then I want to go into the what people can do with the survey they can take of that 17-pager number. But let's quickly have you mention how much does the Amazon headquarters to change all the assumptions in the general plan? It really would be a game changer, I would say, because like I said, the focus of the general plan now is on um, maintenance and how to keep Irvine, Irvine. Having Amazon here would be a huge benefit in so many ways. The jobs that would bring, looking at 50,000 jobs and ultimately build out, I think, up to 8 million square feet. And are, goodbye anything affordable. Goodbye forever. Well, I wanted to clarify the two types of affordable we're talking about. The the regulated affordable units that the 15% we still talk about. but Just median, yeah. But when you look at the income ranges that people are talking about here and the fact that we already are a job-rich area by more than two to one. I've heard some sources say three to one. So that's an issue that we would have to deal with is uh, more housing demand from this project. But it is a very exciting prospect. So I didn't even get a chance to uh, have you open up the whole public comment. There's, it's a, I took the survey yesterday, and I, I wanted to uh, take everything up. Everything was a, 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 a concern to me, a high priority. Sometimes you can, it's a competing priorities thing. Sometimes you can say they're all a priority to you. So I want to let people know. I'll post it in the, the on the askaleader.com podcast summary, but it's uppercase GPU and then PDATE 2035 at, at ci.irvine.ca.us. Or you can call the city at 949-724-6581. Bill Jacobs, I know that was breathless of us, and we have another week of, of material to cover this. And so November 20th is the deadline for public comment. And when will the hearings be, right? When everybody's doing holiday entertaining. How nope. can that be? We'll look at doing well the results of our outreach. We'll, we'll start bringing that forward to the public early next year. So it'll be after New Year's when the actual haggling goes on. So, Bill, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today on Ask a Leader. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Bill Jacobs, Principal Planner for the City of Irvine, was my guest, and we were talking about the General Plan Update 2035. Once again, the deadline for the comment is Ir for the Irvine General Plan is uh, November 20th. That is my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from Melissa Livingston. She's a Master's of Fine Arts directing candidate at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts with her original play, Is There Life After Birth? I believe that's talking about the mother. Then, Danya Akuli returns to the show, this time with her new book, Oceans and Flames, a poetry anthology which highlights work she created amidst her experience with domestic abuse. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.